going to uh, continue our series that we're running in the, the morning up till Easter uh, that is to do with called The Heart of, uh, of Jesus, uh, stemming from Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. And we're learning about the heart of Jesus in uh, how he responded to people, in the, the manner in which he reflects the Father God. But also uh, the significant moments in his life, that in word and deed, in character, he is wholly integrated uh, of seeing what God has planned and the heart of Jesus for his world. So I want to uh, pick up in the story of the Gospels in chapter 4 of Matthew. Uh, obviously, the story is, is replicated in all four of the Gospels in different ways. But we're going to start reading from uh, verse 12 of chapter 4 and uh, through to verse 25. So it'll be on the, on the screen behind me, and uh, maybe you have it in front of you as well. Straight after the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The quote, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill and with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Just before I begin, I, I just want you to, to take a moment to, to uh, either look Next to the people next to you, and I don't just mean the person you've come with. I know that's a delight. You get a chance to look in the eyes of your partner, perhaps your husband, wife, or a friend, but, but maybe in front and behind. Um, I know that's awkward. 
Got to look at people. You introverts are all dying inside at the moment. Oh, he's making me do something awkward. The extroverts are wanting to have a conversation right now. And uh, Why am I doing that? Because there's something really, really very precious about the gathered here today. Every time we gather. Because... In one way or another, we're all responding to the call of Jesus personally to each one of us. That what we hear in this story today, what we are rediscovering, what you will have heard preached perhaps if you've been faithful in church for a long time, the call of disciples, is manifest amongst us. He's called us. He loves us. He calls us by our very name to say, come and follow me. Come and be part of something vibrant. And countercultural and radical and world transforming inwardly within us and outwardly. And around us, seated today, are the evidences of that. And you look great, by the way. So, this story is about Jesus. He's fresh from his baptism. We heard that a couple of weeks ago. And then the Spirit compelled him, led him into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted. And we've thought about that over the last couple of weeks. And from there, he launches into his public ministry. For 30 years, he's been uh, kind of growing and uh, and learning the ways of, of a carpenter in Nazareth. And suddenly now, public for three years, 30 years of growing up, of learning, of, of, uh, of searching the scriptures, of understanding much more of his role and ministry to come. And now that moment has arrived, not only in his life, but in the, the crux of history, the Son of God amongst us. I don't know if you notice, there's a decisive break. He moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. I've, I've just got a little map because uh, this might be something you like. I know there's a, it's quite small, but I, if, at the top there's a little bit of there's colours of places. This is under Herod the Great. And there's a lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. And right at the top of the lake, uh, kind of right at the north, is Capernaum. It's where he goes. That's where he meets the first disciples and calls them. And just for reference because this will be important later. Jerusalem is down in this kind of green bit at the bottom, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Familiar with those places in the Christmas story. Just a visual thing that in the south is Jerusalem, and Jesus is way up there in Capernaum in the north, and Nazareth is to the southwest. He leaves, thanks for that, Steve. We can leave it on if you want. You can try and spot the places. Jesus moves to Capernaum. Why? On the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake and it's a thriving place. I've not yet been to Israel. I I hope to go, but uh, from what I understand of the area and uh, of of the the history of of when Jesus arrived, it was a kind of a bit of a, a melting pot for all sorts of reasons. It was a really populated area. It's not sparse. It's not wilderness. It was thriving. There's a historian called uh, Josephus, and he was formerly a governor of that area. And he said about this region around 
the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, there are no fewer than 204 villages in that province, and estimated there are approximately 15,000 people living there. Now, I know in today's term, it's not like these mega cities around the world, but I just want to draw attention to the fact that as Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, he's getting in the thick, in the midst of people. It's one of the most densely populated areas. And one commentator reckons it probably is the most densely populated area in the Middle East at that time. Wow. I didn't know that. I did this week as I read up about it. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. We heard that in verse 15. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In, in Jewish thought, there were the Jews, the Jewish nation, the people of covenant and promise that the Old Testament speaks of, of how God raised them up from Abraham, how he, he gave them a land and a place and a people and said, through them a blessing will come. And we read through the page of the Old Testament of their story. But they used another word, that of Gentile, who were the non-Jews. Those people who weren't uh, part of the tribe of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob and his 12 sons, who established and became the people of God. The Gentiles are the others, the unbelievers, those who follow and worship other gods, those who they were separate from. Now, a little bit of a history lesson. If you read the Old Testament, things start to go really badly wrong for the people of God. God called them together, made a covenant with them and said, worship me, follow me, live for me. But if you don't, and you can read this in the story of Deuteronomy, then uh, there's going to be a consequence to that. If you are known by my name, but you don't walk in my ways, then I will bring upon you judgment. So after King David who God made a, an amazing promise to, and Solomon, his son. There were kings, a king in Israel over the nation, but Solomon's sons kind of fought, and they split the kingdom. This is a very quick history lesson. Bear with me, because it's important about this text. That the, the kingdom split to the north and the south, the south being Judea around Jerusalem, and the north being the ten tribes. And the ten northern ones, they kind of started to worship other gods. They started to involve themselves with the other faiths of the, other, of the peoples nearby. And they weren't true to the one true God. And so through, through the prophets, the northern kingdoms, God said, I will bring upon you judgment because you've abandoned me. Just as I said, it would be. And so in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians were raised up by God and came and brought devastation to these northern parts. Galilee of the Gentiles. 500 years before the arrival of Jesus, this region of Israel, had been ruled by the Gentiles, had become uh, kind of um, 
very much they'd adopted Greek language, they'd adopted foreign customs and non-Jewish influence, and they were perceived by those dwelling in the south, Judea, Jerusalem, by those who class themselves as the remnant of true Israel, as the ones who had abandoned faith, who had become tainted and unpure and irreligious. And yet, that's where Jesus goes. Galilee stood on one of the oldest and most important trade routes in the Middle East. The way of the sea from Damascus down to Egypt. It was fertile. It was a place of of many influences, of trade, of people passing through. But in the eyes of of the religious at least, it was living in the shadow of immorality and spiritual death. Does it surprise you that that's where Jesus starts? That's where he prioritizes. He moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, the least likely of places and yet wonderfully strategic. Isn't it true that where So often you least expect to find God, where it seems that the dark has become the darkest, that it's the most irreligious, the most far from that which would seem to represent everything of God. That's where God goes, into the midst of the greatest masses of unreached humanity at that time. Do you know this hints? at the wider and the bigger picture. That God's heart always through Jesus is to reach the lost, to reach people near and far. In the language of, of Luke and, the new, and, and of Acts in, in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we have a hint of it right here in this opening chapter of the public ministry of Jesus, that Assyria had ravaged this place. It was decimated in terms of its faith in the one true God. And into this very place comes the light of the Savior. The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. This little phrase that, that uh, Matthew has quoted, land of, uh, of Zebulun and, uh, and of Naphtali, it comes from Isaiah 9. It's one of those classic verses we love to read in carol services at Christmas. It goes like this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor, honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is Jesus. This is his heart. To be with those who we perhaps may class as the furthest and most unlikely That's why I wanted you to look around at each other, because that's us. Sorry if that upsets you and you kind of think, he's being rude about me now, dissing me. Is 
Actually, no, we, every one of us, is broken and failed and marred and cast aside and has fractures and messed up thoughts and inclinations and, and stories that you'd rather keep hidden than public. It's come to us. Because this is his ministry. What does he do? Well, he brings the immediate challenge. He preaches about the kingdom of God. And the first respondees to that were Andrew and Peter, two tough fishermen, brothers. What did he preach? Well, it was, it was decisive and bold and clear, reaching to the will, say, come and follow me. This is the kingdom long awaited. This is a kingdom that out of anything is worth giving your life for and following and being part of. He preached the kingdom of God, of heaven. And he also taught. He also taught and applied and demonstrated informing what it looks like. We see that in the span of the next chapters of the Gospels. And he heals every illness and disease and sickness and every uh, avenue of demonic influence into people's lives. Why do we gather and preach? To call people to follow, to inspire the will about this is worth living for. And we teach and we explain and help people to understand how that roots in our very living. And we, we continue to pray for the sick and see healing. I'm so encouraged that we've been seeing some more of that recently. and want to continue that, to pray for the sick, not just here, but wherever we come across it. Every disease, every inner hurt, and every grip of dark force in our lives. Jesus does. And into that, he calls people. The calling of the disciples, calling to be a people. It's interesting, isn't it? The, one of the very first things he does in his public ministry is call people by name and says, come and follow me. Come and be part of my people. Pop quiz, how many are there in this first wave of calling? Twelve. Wasn't a trick question. Twelve disciples. Obviously, you, I hope you know that that number twelve is, is, is deeply symbolic. It's reflective of this thing that Jesus is doing, deeply reflective about what God wants to establish. If you've ever been to see Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, the stage play, or if you've read Genesis from where it is derived, you know Joseph was one of 12. Jacob's sons. Jacob was a bit of a deceitful character and he, he robbed his brother of his birthright and deceived his dad when he was getting a blessing and he had to go off. Anyway, it's, it's quite a sordid tale, really. But Jacob ends up having 12 sons. And in that story of God's dealing with this broken man, this deceiver, he says, now when Jacob learned to trust God Almighty, Jacob's name got changed to Israel. 
And from Jacob, Israel, the 12 sons became the foundation for the 12 tribes of Israel, this new nation, this outworking of the promises of God. But at the time of Jesus, as I kind of referenced on that map, nine and a half of them had gone, the northern lot. Two and a half of them were left, Judah and Benjamin, and they reckoned half of Levi, the priests. They got decimated 700 years before, scattered amongst the Gentiles. But God was brilliant because in the, in the story of what he was doing through the prophets, he said, I will do a new thing. I will, I will, I will call back the people of God and reestablish my people. Have you noticed that this call of Jesus to gather 12 happens in all four of the Gospels? Have you ever thought about why? Why 12? As he preaches and he proclaims the kingdom of our God, he gathers 12 in, deeply symbolic, demonstrating physically and verbally that the time is fulfilled. The prophetic announcement that was made centuries before is happening. Now is the time for the kingdom of God. It is happening wonderfully. And into that, Jesus is saying, I'm not just bringing a a, a political revival of a nation. I'm not just going to do the political victory over the Romans and those who've oppressed us, but something far more and greater and deeper. He's saying the divine presence is amongst us and the arrival of the kingdom of God as he remakes his people. Who does he call? The remarkable thing about Jesus is he gathers all sorts. That the people that he gathered to journey with him for these three years, they ate together and worked together and traveled together and journeyed together and learned from Jesus. Were they perfect? No, far from it. You get rivalry and sometimes jealousy and and they make mistakes and Jesus has to correct them. But it's amazing, isn't it? This disparate 12, and there were obviously others as time went on, but in this disparate, diverse group brought together by Jesus day after day, week after week, month after month, they didn't fall out and leave each other, did they? I mean, they did fall out, but they didn't walk off. They said this remarkable thing once, where would we go? you ever want to know of how marvelous Jesus' transforming power can be, get up close and personal and stick at it. Because he transforms and brings people together. If church is just about gathering like people of like socioeconomic class and nature together, I mean, God's in the midst of that, but it's just not as beautiful as gathering a whole bunch of weird misfits like me and bunching them together and say, walk together in my presence, be my people. James and John, they got the nickname Sons of Thunder. 
I think they had a fiery temperament. They wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan town. They, they were a bit blunt and brutal. You probably didn't want them as your neighbors next door. But that John is the John of the Gospel of John. And one John that which we preached through recently and has been called the disciple of love. Do you want to know how Jesus can transform people? Look at John. Did you know in that 12, there was an included a traitor, the tax collector, Matthew, a revolutionary subversive, Simon the Zealot, not to mention Judas Iscariot. And in those 12, in those men, and there were women who were with him too, you see that Jesus changes hearts, changes lives. That his power in the midst of us brings peace and reconciliation. You know, if you looked around and thought, I don't want to make eye contact with that person today, thank you very much. There's some peace and reconciliation that Jesus wants to bring. That's who he brings. Why? Because he wants them to be with him, to accompany him, to witness his actions and his deeds, his heart. They were so privileged to see. We may think, I wish Jesus was amongst us, but he is. He says he's given us his spirit. He can be with all of us all the time in every place around the world. That's just marvelous. Don't believe me? The end of this gospel in Matthew, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Let me just make this really profound statement. It caught me out as I read it this week. Apart from Jesus, he said, apart from Jesus' resurrection, there is probably no event in his life of greater significance and more lasting consequence than his choosing of the twelve. Let me say that again. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb of which everything depends, probably no event in the life of his life is of greater significance and more lasting consequence than his choosing of twelve, of the twelve. That's amazing, isn't it? The evidence is right before us and around us. That those who were with Jesus, who he invested in and showed, and their hearts were changed, and they discovered what his preaching was about, and the power of God at work in life, of, of seeing the, he, the sick healed, of, of having the kingdom of God declared, and of finding a way to build life that is upon a rock, not shifting sands. And the baton passed to them and then they are sent out into the world. We are part of that legacy of 12 being chosen. Those pioneers of those people who said yes to Jesus, I will follow. Spurgeon in his 
autobiography said, the history of the church is studded with the remarkable conversions of persons who did not wish to be converted, who were not looking for grace, but were, and were even opposed to it, and yet, by the interposing arm of eternal mercy, were struck down and transformed into earnest and devoted followers of the Lamb. Us. And you can join today if you'd like. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus, he called you by name and says, come and be part of something that will last and endure and be part of a world-transforming movement centered on Jesus. It is good. For the burden and the broken and the misfits, it is good for his heart. Is good and gentle. To the broken and the lost and the unnoticed and the ordinary, come follow.